Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on September the 7th, 2011. For newcomers, you should always make use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website because you'll find hundreds and hundreds of audios for free download where I hopefully have given you shortcuts to understanding this big complicated system that you're born into. And it's a system that is comprised of a parallel government, really, which is a real government. And I go into some of the history of it, too, some of the founders, in fact, and the, and the foundations, too, which run it, funded by the big bankers, because, you see, they had never an intention long, a long time ago of ever bringing in something called democracy. They would use it all the time as a battering ram, but they never actually intended to actually give you it. In other words, those in control in, the, say, the 18th century and in the 19th century never had any intention of giving up their power to other people, but always be passed on to their own. Therefore, they made sure that they put up a power structure with a fake democracy uh, for the public to vote for, and that's how it's really done. And there's hundreds of audios, as I say. And remember, too, that you're the audience that bring me to you because I don't bring on advertisers as guests. And you can help me out by buying the books and discs I've got for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can, if you go into the CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com site, you'll see how to do it. You can use a personal check from the U.S. to Canada, or you can use an international postal money order from the U.S. You can also use PayPal to order, and you, you'll see how to do that too on the com site. And some people will send cash. It's up to you. And remember, straight donations are awfully welcome as we go through this spin of uh, hyperinflation. Really, this is what we're going into, is comparing some prices today and costs of government expenditures from just 10 years ago. And we've gone up about 30% minimum, at least. So anyway, help me out if you can. And uh, across the world, you've got Western Union to use, MoneyGram, and you also have, again, PayPal to order uh, or donate. Now, remember that straight donations are really, really, really welcome because I don't have time to churn out books. If I did, I would be sitting quite pretty right now, but I'm not because what I'm doing right now is this something that's essential for a period of time to wake a lot of people up. And I have managed to do, do that uh, across the world and even steered the whole direction of Patriot Movement for at one time, which was navel-gazing, and then realized that this was happening across the entire planet as a much bigger game than just doing in one country. Like the U.S., for instance, this is global, and that's what they mean by globalism. So uh, hopefully, I've done some good for the the whole uh, movements out there and all its different parts and factions, etc. So you can keep me going if you want to do so by uh, donating or purchasing. It's up to you. What I try to do on the broadcast is educate, and at the same time, not just overload you with the data that's churned out for. Uh, to be overloaded with, because the media's job is to do just that. Uh, I remember reading an article years ago on the air, too, about how most folk have data overload. And not only that, they can't discern what's meaningful in data anymore 
with regards to their, their personal selves, that is. There's so much just thrown out at you all the time, and people don't reflect. And every day there's more junk thrown at you, and it's all it's all passing. It's like watching waves go by, or throwing something in a, in a river and watching it go downstream. Uh, that's what it's like. That's what the daily life is like. But you remember how to pick the certain things that are important, how to save them, keep them, or buy them if they're in book form. And because in the future, you'll be the only people left with a memory, a literal a memory and a coherent story of how this progressed, this new world order, as it's called, actually progressed. Because it's not just uh, stumbling along through the dark with its hands outstretched. It's planned that way. You're living through a very old script. And every country has its puppet masters. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back in cutting through the matrix, this big complicated system with many, many rooms, many levels and above it too, uh, above and below as you say, because you see we, we run in a, we live and we're trained to live in a, in a world designed for us already by the class that you're born into and the group that you're born into. That goes for all classes except the ones that control the upper class. And they do exist. And that's how easy it is to control the world. It's all compartmentalized and um, right down to your prime ministers are all picked by the Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, Quigley uh, said that in his own book too. He was a historian for the CFR. So really, there are no real parties. Uh, I used to laugh even when I was young when occasionally you'd watch a little parliamentary scene in Britain, for instance. Britain's pretty good for it because uh, you'd have some of the Oxford guys here and Cambridge guys and other private schools and, and high schools and universities, and they wouldn't laugh at each other or just give the finger. They'd guffaw. They'd actually guffaw, like, ha, 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 ha. That's how you do it politely, you see, and show you how, how you know, elite you are. And, and then in the States is a bit different again. It's more deadly silences when people aren't very impressed or something like that. Uh, so it's interesting to see how every country is literally studied, because it was created, obviously, but studied so well for the culture that they're going to give the people. And, and then they give you the appropriate shows to keep you happy. That's really how it is. Canada is very good. It's very quiet, really, in Canada. We get front page news of sports things and so on. That's generally what your front page news is in the rags. Another one is about international news and things so far away you don't even know where they are or couldn't care less. But very little about what happens home, at home. And most folk in Canada are quite happy with that. So every country is catered to according to the culture that's been created for them. And, and culture is created for them. I'll even be touching on an item from Canada tonight as a step back from, from one uh, part of the Trudeau culture, Pierre Trudeau, they brought in the, the so-called multicultural society and etc. And now they're trying to bring back the Queen and all this kind of stuff. Actually, they've ordered it to be the Royal Air Force, again, the Royal Canadian Air Force. Let's go back to all of this stuff once again. The Queen's photographs or paintings are up everywhere. So they can change it when they want to, you see. So I always say to people, don't be so proud of your cultures because you understand they've been created for you to fit into. I hope you will really understand what I'm saying. That's a fact. In all ages, in all ages you're given appropriate culture according to the rulers or masters of the particular territory that you're born into. 
in that time. And you'd be given the right religion for, for, for the time as well, for you. And that's how you create culture. And from then on, it's a matter of schooling. And then the media comes out too. And, and they, they play to your culture. That's what they do. And we're living through the creation of the, the greatest culture of all, the global culture. And right now it's in transition into this, into this kind of strange mush where nobody's really sure exactly where they fit anymore. And that's intentional. And they can't go any further till they've got the, like, stirring up a cake mix until it's ready, you know, to get baked. And that's where we are right now. It seems it's, it's like almost semi-chaotic. But it's not really. It's crazy like a fox, as I say. They know, they know exactly where they're taking us. So you're living through the transformation, the creation of a culture. Nowhere will you see this so obviously uh, as in Europe, as a creating a European culture, step by step, crisis by crisis. All, all the crises are intentional. Rather than say, oh, this didn't work, we'll toss it out. No, no, no. They, they go ahead. You'll always notice they go ahead and they use the crisis to, to, to be solved by the next part of integration. So... It all depends, you see, on propaganda. And the, the EU Parliament, this new super parliament that uh, a high society created, definitely, there's no doubt about it, it was the Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, a long time ago set up the structure and the, and the machinery to set up the European Parliament. They boast about it, in fact, and NAFTA for Americas. And you actually see them create, try create this culture right now. It might take another 100 years, maybe only 50 to complete it, till no one knows what they came from or whatever, and there'll be this new strange Euro group, and, and they'll, they'll, they know exactly what kind of culture they want to give you, which is kind of communistic, because, again, remember too, the CFR, Rolling Super International Affairs, were always accused of um, promoting what seemed to be left-wing, the far left. And of course they were, because they helped fund the far left and create it in the first place. Because it's easier to control people with massive government and bureaucracies and levels and control right down to childcare, all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, that, that's really what it's about. So the bankers love that system. It seems to, it's better than having a more, a true right wing system would be ultimate freedom, but you have to deal with a lot of problems on your own. Because it wouldn't be all these agencies. There'd be fewer cops or few cops at all. And you'd have to deal with problems yourself. And that's the theory of it, at least. Not that you have that anymore. It's, they're both the same. Anyway, uh, here's what they're doing in Europe. And it says, this is how it starts. First, a European Commission uh, fellow traveler. Tra- fellow traveler means uh, a communist who's generally a mason, by the way. That's the old terms for it. In this case, Philip uh, Kaya, the head of Euronews, it's a big news organization that works on behalf of the, how wonderful the European Union is, this massive propaganda machine. The broadcaster of so-called EU Perspective News, which is 25% funded by the Commission, I mean, the taxpayers fund their own propaganda, identifies a problem which is, according to Kayla, the fact that news broadcasters in Europe are largely dependent on advertising and subscription. In other words, they're, they're separate from the need to get anything from the EU Parliament. So, so Kayla, this guy in charge of the, 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 this new Soviet news for, for the whole of Europe on behalf, behalf of the European Commission, he wants to levy a tax on all independent newscasters and news organizations. The government will, go, will collect the taxes, then it will distribute it to another organization, which will give, it, give the, this cash to the right organizations, you know, the, the papers that can't get enough support through, through advertising and so on, because no one wants to hear about them. 
because they're so far left wing. So he's going to fund these uh, Euro-loving or, or, uh, newspapers by penalising all the independent newspapers, basically. It says the Euro News boss proposes a solution to this problem. He wants the EU to impose a licence fee, which is a new tax, on all of us to be taken by the EU, but distributed by independent, uh, it says, yes, sure, bodies outside the control of national government. Money would go to a number of media organisations. Yes, not to all, just a number, as in the new tax revenues will go to broadcasters anointed by the Eurocrats. Now, if you just put things in perspective, we've been bombing the blazes out of different countries recently, claiming they're run by bad men, and uh, they're going to bring in democracy. Democracy is a right to choose a lot of different things. That's what it is, you see, democracy. Uh, but you see, there's no such thing as democracy, because here's one of the biggest blocks on the planet now. It used to be the old Soviet bloc, but it's expanded, and now it's, it's got Britain and other countries involved in it too. And they're basically penalizing free independent papers, taxing them, and giving the cash to their own newspapers that are all pro-total integration for this new Europe with its new society and eventually its completely new culture. That's what it's about. But you understand the significance. You're living while a culture is gradually, gradually being created. This has been done in the past many times. This is not a, a new science, how to do it. In the olden days, they had different techniques and would do it faster. They'd just go in with large armies and slaughter a lot of the people until they got on their knees and would obey their masters. But to get them to go along with it this way, it takes a bit longer. You see lots of propaganda. And they must get all the governments at the top to sign locking and binding agreements to give up more and more sovereignty until there's no more sovereignty left to give up. You see, that's how you do it nowadays. And again, it's all indoctrination through the school system. And then you even get the governments to sign on to treaties where the European Parliament will fine them if they don't hang a flag or the Euro flag or, or, or play the national anthem of this new strange Europe entity, you see. But that's the creation of a new culture and how you penalize those who want to stay independent and think for themselves and play to an audience that think they're free uh, and the ones uh, that, of course, are all pro-Europe, which are anointed by the, the Euro king, put it that way, the guy at the very top in this mysterious pyramid organization they call Europe. But that's how it's done. And it's kind of exciting when you understand what's happening, but by just knowing this stuff in advance, having read history and then uh, and sociology, and then you, you, you look at actually being put into place. And most of the folk don't know what's even happening to them. They'll start using buzzwords, things like that, until they'll start thinking of themselves as European, like it's always been European, very Orwellian. You know, very Orwellian, but quite wonderful in some ways to watch it and study it, as long as you're not in it. And what they're doing with Europe now, again, after having bankrupted all the countries that signed on, intentionally, of course, uh, and had them all throw cash at this black hole. It's, it's a, kind of like a leaky boat. It's got a hole in it. And, if, and if each country in turn keeps throwing money at this hole, maybe it will plug it. That's the idea, that the, the, the farcical idea, the supposedly intelligent people by the millions are supposed to believe. Do you really believe that? Who's counting all this cash? Who knows where it's going? Who knows what's even owed? Nobody does. 
It's just getting you on your knees until, the, and, and then they come by with the next suggestion. Oh, let's totally integrate Europe, including all fiscal policies. Right? So here's an article. The old continent huffs and puffs in quest of a passably workable monetary union. This is propaganda now, right? Mayhem in the Eurozone. Well, mayhem after the crater, right? As a major contributor to the international financial crisis. The immediate cause may be reckless policies pursued by governments and banks, but the institutional structure of the European Monetary Union is the stubborn root of the problem, you see. First, some broad truce managing a large monetary union should be straightforward so long as the right mechanisms are in place. Well, it's the same crooks are in charge, so I guess that's the right mechanisms. And monetary policy requires an all-union central bank. There you go, a custodian of the currency. I'll read a bit more on this as we come back from this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix talking about how the the creates whole systems, societies and and first of all you must get them to accept a common currency, even currency at all for that matter. Think about it. That's how you are first gotten is by accepting currency. And of course someone else produces a currency and decides how much it's worth and then you you've had it. But anyway, they'll keep the same common system going because that's how control is always kept by the cash. And as long as you have cash flowing, they can always hire armies and policemen to beat you on the head if you say, I'm not going along with this anymore, which is why you've got the terrorist state, of course. That's really what it's for. It's getting us through this particular time in history as things are taken down in the so-called first world countries. Anyway, this article here talks about, um, uh, really, they want to, in Europe, amalgamate everything. Not just the IMF doing every country's books. Literally, they want a central banking system with the right to... Tax everyone. Everything will go round to your own government that used to be federal. It'll go straight to the European Union. That's really what it is—a decisive central authority, they call it—and uh, and they'll do, deal with the debt. So once again, uh, a private banking system that your governments or your new government, the super euro, will all go to to, to borrow with. Uh, and as well, they talk about migration of labor and so on. Uh, if there's too much uh, poverty in one area, you simply move them from, from one X nation to another, just back and forth. Now, now, that was part of the free trade agreement, which is all of this is under. The, the, the free transportation or, or the, the free movements of, of capital and labor across existing borders until there's no borders at all. So the future, if you want work at all, will be you'll be constantly moving, maybe living here five years, moving somewhere else for five years. That's the way of the future. And, of course, that ties in with Jack Satali's, uh, one of his books on the um, winners and losers in the coming new world order, the millennium, he called it, millennium. Anyway, that's the key system of the future. And then in Canada, you'd think, well, Canada's got a smaller population, pretty small for the size of the country. Uh, although you can only live in certain parts of it, certainly, unless you want to get, donate a lot of blood to mosquitoes for nature conservation, which I do every year. But anyway, that's another matter altogether. Uh, Canada, uh, at one time the CFR said that the maximum population for Canada would be 22 million for sustainability. That was back in the 1920s. I've got their old books here. And here we are well over that and global and all the rest of it. 
But lots of natural resources, lots and lots of natural resources, which are seldom talked about by the boys at the top when they keep telling us we're broke. Anyway, the Canadian dollar, which is strong right now, right, is strong. It's not just, I don't know how they can say that because I know the inflation in Canada has gone up higher than even in the States. They've purposely kept the States down. We're paying a lot more for food, basic stuff in Canada than anywhere else. But they're claiming here that because as they've downgraded the world, the, 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 World Economic Forum downgraded the U.S. again. This private club again of bankers downgraded the U.S. And at the same time, uh, Canada was mentioned because Canada is bad for exporting for Canada because Canada's dollar is strong. So you've got a strong dollar, which means you can't sell anything. That's <laughs> not one. You, you get shafted either way you go. Either way, you get shafted, you know. It's a con game. And that's what economics is. I can remember, I wish I had a copy of it too. It was a Man Alive, I think, program where different economists, top economists, about five professors too, uh, had left the profession because they said it was no profession at all. It was a con game, an absolute con game, this whole bogus science of economics. And that ties in with what Mr. Rothschild said a long time ago. He said, the only ones who will catch on to, to the scam with interest and borrowing and debt and compound interest, etc., would be those working and making their living off of money itself, you know, accountants, those kind of people. And they would not let it out of the bag because it was, it was not in their interest to let the people know what was really happening. So they'd be in on it, in other words. And that's how it's always been. If they're so, such great economists, how come we get bank crashes and the economy is always slumping and they never see it coming? Uh, well, they can tell you all about it afterwards, always, but they can't tell you anything that's going to happen. And you were employing all these economists like gurus with crystal, crystal balls to see if we've got any future at all. And they keep pulling them out of the hat. And they're always wrong. Right? Anyway, Canada's uh, had it because uh, we, we can't export our natural resources, really, because that's about all we do now. Uh, and, um, and apart from taxpayers' money across the world uh, to do, redistribute the wealth. And... Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, we've had it until we sink our dollar even further. Because it's too strong, you see. It's not good having a strong dollar. It's like that disc I've talked about before, that um, that DVD. It's good to watch. Uh, oh, Canada, it's called. Excellent. Where a young fellow goes in, talks to ex-prime ministers and present members of the government. And the present members of the government didn't even know how the money was created in Canada. None of them knew. And he talks to ex-prime minister Martin. Paul Martin, who tells them that debt is good for Canadians. Having debt by the government, you see, government debt, is good for Canadians. And, of course, he couldn't very well, he kind of drags off trying to explain it, because he can't explain it. How is it good for you when your taxes go up and up and up? But, again, you didn't study economics, did you? You're just so silly. That's how it is. So, Ottawa claims, and this is what they're claiming, I think it's a lot more than this, actually, since September 11 attacks in the U.S., Canada has spent $92 billion so far. This is from a think tank and from the Globe and Mail. It says the 9-11 terrorist attacks have had a lasting impact on Canadian government's finances, spurring Ottawa to spend an additional $92 billion on national security over the last 10 years. For what? For what? It's for the coming global Please state that's what it's for. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix. Just touching on an article from the Rideau Institute, which they always tell you it's a far left organization, but far left, far right. What does it matter? They're all probably pretty wealthy, pretty much the same, and they all probably know each other from all the right wing think tanks. However, it says the Rideau Institute has released a new report that tabulates for the first time the number of additional dollars spent on national security since the terror attacks on September 11, 2001. The report's called The Cost of 9-11 Tracking the Creation of a National Security Establishment. You see, that's what it's created. It's creating a national security establishment. Like a police state is really another term for it. It was written by economist David MacDonald and examines how much federal government spends spending on the Department of National Defense, Foreign Affairs, Public Safety, and related agencies has increased over pre-9-11 levels. A decade after the tax on 9-11, it's time to reevaluate whether we should continue the high level of national security spending, said Stephen Staples, president of the Rideau Institute. The government has created a national security establishment in Canada. Every country has done that across the world. This never happened in, in, last, in World War II. After Pearl Harbor, the whole world didn't go into a police state, you know. So they all signed on to it long before it happened through treaties. They'd all copy and follow the leader. Because you must bring in a police state to bring the big changes through and manage them. And there will be big changes. They need a police state to handle coming riots because people are going to live in poverty, austerity, and the work's all shipped off overseas. And so it's all arranged for long before it happens. Anyway, it says from 2000 to 2001, the year before September 11, terrorist attacks in the United States, Canada has devoted an additional $92 billion, that's $69 billion inflated adjusted, to national security spending over and above the amount it would have spent had budgets remained in line with the pre-9-11 uh, levels. And this, this fiscal year, from 2011 to 12, Canada will spend $34 billion alone on its national security, which is an additional $17 billion uh, inflated, adjusted more than the amount it would have spent had budgets remained in line with the pre-11 levels. It's an increase of 105%. And it says military expenditures have nearly doubled uh, since 9-11. And then the Department of National Defense is by far the largest consumer of national security expenditures at more than $21 billion this fiscal year. Security and public safety programs have nearly tripled in spending from $3 billion to almost $9 billion annually. Uh, if, you want, if you've got any children, you as well as get them into security businesses because there will be nothing else to do in the future. And they can all spy on, on, on the general population and, and wear nice black suits and, and ski masks and things. As his author David MacDonald hopes the report will launch a discussion about future spending at a time when the global economy seems to be a greater threat to Canadian security than global terrorism. Should we spend another $92 billion or more over the coming decade on a national security establishment? Well, we have no option because, you see, long before 9-11, uh, James Magazine and other and the big think tanks that also work for the military were saying that in 10, this is like you know years and years before 2001, they said eventually uh, that there were Shifting, already shifting their scope because they knew they'd run out of wars eventually. The wars that they still had to come, they'd run out of them. And the big military-industrial complex was already shifting into national security and and all your camera gears. This was all talked about years before 9-11 came along. They were already on the move for, for the post-ex-Middle uh, 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 Eastern wars. And that's where we are today. That's how the world is run, though, eh? 
And as I said, too, the World Economic Forum downgrades America, international experts. That's all you have to say now is experts. Who are the experts? Well, the same bankers and so on uh, that helped uh, that help to get the world in the mess that's already in. The losing face in the U.S.'s ability to overcome the country's financial crisis as demonstrated in a new report issued by the WEF. Say it backwards, that's for the few, because you won't get into it. And this latest listing of the world's most competitive economies, the U.S. Uh, has slumped down to slot number five, trailing in order of Switzerland, Singapore, Sweden and Finland. The U.S. held the first place position back in 2008, but the recession that started a downward spiral late that year has displaced the United States into lower standing. And you understand we're supposed to all be competing with each other. That was also part of the European um, blurbs I gave a, a, a couple of minutes ago there from the newscasts. It's, we've got to compete with each other. Even within the European Union, they've got different zones competing with each other. You understand your whole life is, is just a, a modern form of slavery. It's a wage slave, it's what you are. In the old days, all they did is come in and invade your place and put uh, warlords over you, the feudal overlords, and they'd, they'd, you'd call you slaves and serfs. And it sounds better as calling it a serf in English, but it meant a slave. You were bought and sold with the land. And today, of course, you don't need that. They make you think you're free, and then you work. And since money represents your labor, and then the government takes it off you through taxes, uh, then you're still a slave. You're still a slave. If they take that off you, that is your labor. And that's what slavery is. Your, your labor is taken from you by an overlord. People don't even know what it is anymore. And, of course, we're better slaves than we were before. We're, we've got lots of entertainment and things like that. We can actually buy our own clothes uh, after you, the money's left from the money that's taxed from you. And everything you buy is taxed as well. And um, we feed ourselves with the, with the stuff, this, this plastic rubbish they now call food. And, uh, uh, and of course, we even most folk even in Canada is beautiful for this. It's one of the most insured country in, in the planet. They insure everything. Uh, for themselves, and, and they've all, they're all paid up for their funerals and everything, and it long in advance, you know. So we even pay for our funerals uh, before we die, just to, you know, make bigger profit for the insurance companies and all that. So we're awfully, awfully good in Canada, but uh, it's, it's just amazing, as I say, the strong dollar goes up, and then you can't export anything because it's, oh, it's too strong a dollar, we better weaken it, and ah, what a lot of nonsense, eh? A lot of nonsense. Another article I want to mention tonight, too, is about the police state in the U.S. It's not a bad article. It's called America's War Within. And it says, Mall of America visitors unknowingly end up in counterterrorism reports. And it's from Bloomington, Minnesota. It says, As he shot for a children's watch inside the sprawling Mall of America, two security guards approached and began questioning him. Although he was not accused of wrongdoing, the guards filed a confidential report about Kleinerman, that was forwarded to local police. The reason that they did this is that guards thought he might pose a threat because they believed he'd been looking at them in a suspicious way. A suspicious way. Maybe he was kind of fascinated by all the gear they had on that you, you know, you're normally seeing in the movies until you see it in person. Najam Qureshi, owner of a kiosk that sold items from his native Pakistan, also had his own experience with authorities after his father left a cell phone on a table in the food court. The consequence was an FBI agent showed up at the family's home, asking if they knew anyone who might want to hurt the United States. Mall of America officials say their security unit stops in questions on average up to 1,200 people each year. 
The interviews at the mall are part of a counter-terrorism initiative which acts as a private eyes and ears of law enforcement authorities but has often ensnared innocent people, according to an investigation by the Centre for Investigative Reporting and NPR. Well, obviously, most of those 1,200 people that stop every year are innocent, not some, right? It says in many cases that the written reports were filed without the knowledge of those interviewed by security. Several people named the reports learned from journalists that their birth dates, race, names of employers and other personal information were compiled along with surveillance images. One Iranian man, now 62, began passing out during questioning. An army veteran sobbed in his car after he was questioned for nearly two hours about video he'd taken inside the mall. You get grilled, just like it didn't waterboard you, but they, they go as much of the way. Much of the questioning at the mall has been done in public while shoppers mill around. Records show two people, a shopper and a mall employee, also described being taken to a basement area for questioning. Officials at the mall would not address individual cases. That's all part, as I say, this new initiative, you see. Um, uh, it says uh, that you're supposed to support anything, uh, report anything suspicious, according to Napolitano, and they're all going along with this new policy. Uh, I mean, what a world, eh? Do you really want that? All this information, it says, too, goes to a fusion center. A fusion center. By the way, they were, they were building police departments in these malls with cells in them before 9-11 waiting for 9-11 to come along. You think it's all this coincidence? No. So I'll put this link up tonight too at cuttingthroughthematrix.com along with these other links. And Getting back to Canada though, when Pierre Trudeau came in, and Pierre Trudeau was a communist who ran for the Liberal Party. All the media knew it, but just that most Canadians didn't know it. He was an official member of the Communist Party. Of Canada, and in 1952, he led the Comintern, the Young Communists of Canada, over to the Moscow meeting uh, on behalf of Canada, and he became Prime Minister, and um, completely turned the country upside down to get it global. And uh, one thing that he did that pleased a lot of folk was to to try and distance the name of Canada from uh, the, the Queen royalty and all that. But, and it's amazing now, now that they've, they've got the, the, the country multicultural and, and used to the, this, this new normal, now we're getting another new normal, which has gone back the way again, the old, old normal. So that it's bringing back the royal renaming of, uh, of many things, like the military. It says, royal renaming shows Harper's small ball savvy. The decision by the Harper government to rename the Canadian forces seems to come out of nowhere, stir a twitch of controversy, and then disappear as a story. But it was a potentially provocative decision by the government and worthy of a bit more analysis of the politics that surrounds it. The first question is why, or most particularly, why now? And it says, without being privy to any of the internal background within government policy circles, it's hard to imagine this decision would have been taken now had a royal visitors this summer been Prince Charles and Camilla, or even the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh. Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge did a lot to freshen the image of the monarchy, so much so that the idea of investing billions in a more modern defence force and at the same time reaching back several decades to rename it doesn't seem as incongruous to most voters as it might have. So how did the decision land? It says a, a Harris Decimal poll completed only days after the move was announced showed it was a net positive for the Conservatives. In other words, they're trying to say it's a political move for the Conservatives, which I don't believe at all, to be honest with you. I don't really believe it at all. Anyway, they're trying to say that 56 people agree with the move. 
to bring back the Royal Canadian Military uh, and and there was put the word royal back in. Well, how can you be independent and, and national but you're part of a dominion? This used to be called the Dominion of Canada. And it was owned by the Queen, well it still obviously is. Isn't it? And, and Harper's also told all, and all the, the military is quite happy because they, they like the old idea of the colours, they've gone through different wars and all that stuff. And, and, um, and of course, uh, Harper's told all the, 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 em, the, the embassies across the world, the Canadian embassies, to hang the photograph or the picture or the portrait of the Queen up for all to see, uh, by the end of the week actually. And that will, will be done as well, I'm sure. But why now? We'll, we'll see. Is it just to cause more trouble when you don't need it? I don't know. We'll find out as time, things go, go on. But, uh, as I say, I'll put all these links up too, including the, the orders to tell the embassies to start displaying a portrait of the Queen. And a good article here is about how they're teaching children about 9-11. I said years ago that, there, that there's a, children growing up now that, that, that won't remember 9-11 or even have, or, or are born post-9-11. And it's interesting to see how the country goes into action to make sure they get the right idea of why they're living, and it won't be called a police state, it'll be a security state for their own good, and how they go about it. Well, here you go. There's an article here about children and the new uh, indoctrination system, new curriculums in schools, starting in, in New Jersey, but no doubt in some other places too, and they go across the whole country. And uh, it's interesting how, the, how they're doing it. They say that there's 60 million children in America are 14 and younger right now, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. So how do teachers handle the daunting task of trying to explain the significance of 9-11 to students who don't remember when anyone could walk right up to the gate at the airport or when Osama bin Laden wasn't a household name? Their answer is simple, and it's changed over time as the country's rhetoric about the attacks has evolved. It certainly has. eh? So um, they've got the usual things like students gathering for assemblies and moments of silence, the, the, the normal stuff. But they also went to a new curriculum and uh, it goes up to, uh, it says, the New Jersey unveiled its new curriculum last year in honor of the 10th anniversary of the attacks, a lesson plan created by families of September 11 victims and New Jersey Commission on Holocaust Education. It provides 56 lessons which start simple and grow in complexity and maturity with each grade level, emphasizing the good that can come out of the tragedy for younger students. I don't know how they... Well, I understand where it comes from. And examining the history of terrorism and other complicated lessons for older students. The lessons recommend some kind of action, such as creating art about tolerance or service projects to honour or remember victims. But, of course, what it really is, whether you like it or not, it's going to be a very limited view of what happened. It's to get children used to the fact they're living in what to them is normal, is a, a state with its pat-downs and going through security uh, electronics survey stuff at school, all that kind of thing. Why there'll be cameras sprouting up everywhere where they can't have privacy until they'll think it's all quite normal. So this will be the first generation you see that's never known what privacy is. In fact, a lot of the youngsters now uh, don't understand it. They don't even want it. They think, well, what's the good of privacy? They have no idea of history at all. And, and how how tyrants have arisen all down through the ages and tyrannical times and turned armies on their own people with utter brute force and deadly force. 
And it's often done through information collection. You know, when the communists came in to the, the different countries they invaded, they rounded up all the people that could speak out against them who were educated enough to know what was going on. Because the lists were already drawn up. And where did they get all the information? From the census data collected. Names, addresses, religions, everything. Same happened in Germany under Hitler. They sent all the data on everything about you, including your religious beliefs. And we, we're way beyond that now. Way beyond that now. And everyone's so innocent about it. Innocent again, eh? <laughs> history always repeats itself, only worse each time. And that's been the history since the machine gun was invented and they used it full blast in World War One, and and, uh, and then it's just been a, a, an onslaught of bigger and better uh, weaponry to kill masses of people. Understanding total warfare is an idea that was born in Britain at Sandhurst. Uh, total warfare was to change the whole way we look at war. In old days, it was mercenary armies often that used to come across, and they'd fight off on a battlefield somewhere. And often villages miles away didn't even know what was happening, and they generally weren't bothered much by it. But total warfare said that no, every citizen is there for a target, a legitimate target of slaughter to win the war. And that's what was used all through World War One, and then accelerated World War Two, and who knows what's next? Eh? Do you really want to look at it? Not, not too, not too good, is it? But you have good news too that, that Ford is building a one billion dollar car manufacturing plant and complex in India, and I'm sure your tax money is helping them too. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, and we'll jump to the phones. Now, that an hour flies in, and you have to really speed things up to try to get anything out at all. But uh, we'll try and see if Sam in Toronto is still on the line. Is he there? Hey, Alan, how you doing? Thanks Not for taking so my call again. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Uh, just a quick question from you. I wanted to know if the Federal Reserve, its um, charter, is it true that it, it had a 100-year charter? The Federal Reserve? Of the U.S.? Yeah, from the U.S. Yes, I, I believe it had. It's supposed to be rechartered every so often, yeah. So, so 19, 1913 is when they signed the charter. Yeah. So then I guess 2013 is when uh, when it ends. And uh, I just had a theory, and I just wanted to know what you thought of it. For them to uh, go to their next, like this new world order that they call... I guess uh, everybody now agrees that that's going to be a one-world, one-system socialist um, kind of uh, government. I, and for them to reach that, I think, they, well, it's obvious that they have to break this current system. And uh, I think what we're seeing right now is actually the, the collapse of, of the current banking system and, and, and obviously all contrived by them. Mm. Basically, they're trying to make it obvious to everybody that, Banking. You're, you're right on. That's what they do. They make it obvious to you that it's not working. But it actually is for them, of course. They lose nothing. 
what you're seeing is a transformation into the next level of the new system with the same boys in charge. And, of course, 2013 would fall in perfectly well with a deepening amalgamation with Canada and maybe into a single system as well. Because they've been talking about that for years, and they're actually signing agreements every year uh, into, it, it, again, uh, tightening the, the bonds between Canada and the States. The same stuff that they used in Europe, same terminology, uh, closer ties, integration. And we, we know they sign them every year. Uh, so that could be the way it's taken over. And you have a central bank of the Americas. That was discussed, by the way, in the initial free trade agreements in Canada. They would, they would do that. They want to set Montreal up initially as an international capital for the whole of the Americas with the banking system based there. And I don't know if they've changed their minds or not. But if they can convince us, oh, we're all going down the tubes together, we better do something, let's all amalgamate, just like Europe, uh, then a new banking system will come out of it, yeah. More centralized, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, what they call the new world order, it will probably kick into place. I mean, uh, to get there, my guess is there's going to be much, much bigger disasters, uh, yeah. all uh, contrived by them, obviously. Absolutely. To uh, to get to a point where people are just disgusted with this old world. Well, I always say that, you see, the, the victim of the abuser, the victim always turns to the abuser for help. That's what happens. So they cause their problem, and then we, when we're so down on our knees, we turn to them, the same people who've just done us, done us in, basically, and we ask them to get us out of the mess. And they say, oh, by the, we've just got drafted up a plan that'll do that very thing. And you're so grateful, you just go into it, then you regret it later, you know. It's a, yeah. it's a big Hegelian dialectic, and uh, my theory is that Ron Paul will be the so-called savior, and he will be in the new system. Basically, how he talks about getting rid of the Federal Reserve. I mean, anybody who was not part of the system and, and said he wants to get rid of the Federal Reserve, he wouldn't last more than a week. Yeah, you couldn't get him in. He'd be assassinated so fast. A real man would be assassinated. So, in fact, you'd have to get a security team picked by himself and hide somewhere else while he took over. You're quite right. But thanks for calling. From Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, this good night, me. Your God, your gods go with you, and please help me out here. Buy the books and donate. Thank you. <laughs>